Okay, last week, uh, I think we went over to uh, page 13. Um, most of that's kind of heavy stuff, if you notice, so I kind of felt the freedom to gloss over. If you want to do technical studies, you got about five pages there. Um, and the, probably the two, there were really three concepts that are very important, really basically two. When we look at the Psalms, we're best to view the Psalms like we do our hymn books. Our hymn books are composed of individual Psalms, sometimes going back five, six hundred, maybe even a thousand years. Uh, the Psalter is the same way. The earliest Psalm is by uh, Moses, that's Psalm 90. One of the later Psalms is Psalm 137, where uh, they're framed for the destruction of Babylon. That's what we call the post-exilic period. So that's about a 900-year gap. So we have psalms from those various periods, and remember they were written individually, they were collected into smaller groups, then a little bit larger groups, and then we looked at the five-fold structure of the Psalter. You can see how it's put together very clearly, and I think I drew your attention to that uh, in the first few pages of the notes. So I think we're right to view the Psalter. Can I call it an inspired hymn book? Our, uh, our hymn books, we'll come think you don't use hymn books here. But our hymn books at Inner City uh, or wherever, uh, they're not inspired. Great music, but they're not inspired. The Psalter is. So this is, can we call it Israel's hymn book? So that was the first thing. Uh, the second thing was is that we do have some editorial additions to the Psalms. Remember the small print before the verses? Like in Psalm 3, you'll have a small print then verse 1. That comes by the uh, final editors of the Psalter who's putting that together. Also the word Selah. Uh, that comes from the editors. And I think I've made some disparaging remarks. I've had a few students go out and read the Psalms and I'm in the service and Whenever they uh, read Selah, when they're reading the psalm, I always want to take my handkerchief and say, I didn't teach them. <laughs> I told them, don't read that. Uh, so, but I have seen it, and we all have too. It's not necessary. I don't want to question anybody's piety in reading it. I just don't know that it helps to flow the psalm. So that is an editorial thing. It means something like either to lift up, to bow down, do something in unison. There's about five different options. I have no firm opinion on it. It seems like it's something connected to some musical instruments in the Psalter, but that's about all we can go. So I'm not going to put my name on the line for anything I can't prove, so you all can do that yourself. But tonight we wanted to start with page 13. And uh, we want to start looking at the nature of poetry. Now this this night will be uh, like last week. There will be some technical things we'll cover, but after tonight we're going to start looking at the Psalms. But there are some basics that I do think we need to understand so that we don't overwork or underwork the Psalms. So let's pick up on page 13 with the nature of the Psalms. In looking at the nature of the Psalms, I'm going to treat the subject of religious lyric poetry, uh, a few items related to the evocative language, not a whole lot. 
there's a book by Bollinger, I think it's 700 to 1,000 pages dealing with figures of speech. I've got it. I've looked at it. I've not read it from cover to cover. It's just uh, too tedious and puts me to sleep. So if I need to fall asleep at night, that's where I go to. <laughs> a few Hebrew books as well. So uh, there are many of those. We're going to at least sample a few because we do need to know how some figures work. And uh, we'll look at the historical setting, a basic structure that runs through all the psalms, and the literary structures in the psalms. So let's start with number one. This at the bottom of page 13. Religious lyric poetry. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, notice it's made up of three words. Let's start with the word poetry. Poetry is a language of images and the use of comparisons. We see a lot more figures in the Psalms. Uh, there's a lot of comparisons made. It is more highly concentrated and its structure is more highly structured than prose. Now you may wonder what prose is. Uh, let me give you a good example of what prose material is. Turn back to Genesis 1. Notice... I think most of you are using the NIV. The NIV, when it first came out, the one advantage of it is it puts things in paragraphs. Now, this is uh, not stylized prose, but notice the way that's put in paragraphs. Genesis 1, you have 1 and 2, and verses 3 through 5, 6 to 8. So you can see the units. Turn over to Genesis 2. Uh, pick up in verse 4. This is the count of the heavens and the earth when they're created. Now notice the way the, the words fill up from one margin to the other margin. That's how you know you're dealing with prose, at least in a modern translation. So that's prose. Compare this with, uh, let's look at Psalm 1. Notice the difference. Um, notice the lines don't run from margin to margin. Psalm 1, blessed is the man, mind indented, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight. So notice the indentation there. That's usually a good sign of, of poetry. So that's the great thing about modern translations, because they reflect that in the way they arrange it. In the Hebrew Bible, it's not arranged like that. If they just run them consecutively. You have to look at the meter, the rhythm, things like that. So it's not always an easy chore. So we're good with our translations. So uh, I know the NIV, the ESV, I think the New Nasby, they'll show that, reflect that style. So it's easy to tell what it is. So that's poetry. That's contrasted with prose. I have a chart on the following page that reflects a continuum. Uh, I think this brings it all together. Uh, hopefully it doesn't sound like too much seminary talk, though. So <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can communicate it clearly. When we talk, like tonight, I'm looking at my notes. I, I will say more than in my notes. So there's some things I just fill in. Uh, 
notice I'll repeat myself a lot. Uh, that's part of uh, oral communication. That's uh, that's speech. It's loosely structured. What governs it is the basic message. Uh, you listen to a lot of pastors preach, and uh, they're preaching from an outline. And my, my, I can't go on. <laughs> well, it's loosely structured, but if you notice, there's a lot of repetition. Well, that's what uh, loosely structured taught us. You emphasize a few things. You're not trying to write a prose piece. You're just trying to get some basic points across. Well, that's the one, and that's the, what I call the speech act. It's loosely structured. If you notice at the far end, pro poetry, and in the middle's prose. That's like what we see in the historical books, in the Pentateuch. At the other end, we have poetry. It's highly structured. It has rhythm. It has assonance. Uh, it's got parallelism. That's highly structured. So we go from the different ends of the spectrum. Guess which one's hardest to do? It's the poetry. Uh, you all look like you probably go back to the time when in education you had to write some poetry. Uh, or maybe I'm just old enough that some of you all didn't have to do that. We did. And I hated it. I was never very good at it. Uh, it was too hard to do. Now, I like writing stories because they're easy. You just let your mind run wild and just put down anything you can get away with in the paper. <laughs> but that's prosaic. Uh, however, what I really like is just being able to talk because I can stress what I want to stress. I don't have to worry about getting things to rhyme, making sure that I... I mean, I want to be coherent, but I'm sure I'm not always coherent. At least that's what my wife tells me. So... Oh, but what she knew. <laughs> she made one bad decision. <laughs> so that's that's poetry. So poetry is highly structured. Also notice we call it religious lyric poetry. A lyric poem is characterized by its abbreviated nature. If you compare the individual psalms with the book of Job, that's epic poetry. It's it's uh, it's long and drawn out. Well, that's what we would call an epic poem. Lyric <coughs> poems, with the exception of Psalm 119, of course, they're abbreviated. Psalm 119 is off the charts, though. Uh, when you're reading through your Bible, when I was a kid, I remember we were supposed to read through it. I can remember one night, I think I was in ninth grade, I got to Psalm 119. I started reading it. I said, well... <laughs> Good night. <laughs> and I just put it down. I don't think I picked up my Bible after that. <laughs> oh, at least for a number of years. So, with the exception of that psalm, most of them are, are abbreviated and you can see that. So that's a lyric poem. But notice there's another adjective used here. It's called religious lyric poetry. It communicates a poet's thoughts and feelings as prompted by his understanding of God and his work. Now, please notice, this does include his thoughts, but also his emotions come out of time. Uh, you read some of the laments, and in the first part, they're, they're pretty depressing. But yet, with the exception of one psalm, they always end with a focus on God, with one exception, which 
does seem to say it's by nature religious. Now, if we go to a funeral, uh, you know, I think Christian funerals are better because there's optimism. Uh, however, I've been to some where that's not the case. Uh, and it, it's a very somber thing. It's a mourning. Well, the difference between that and with the believer is it's the Christian hope. May I say in the Old Testament they had the same type of hope? And because of that, even the morning songs will at least get to God. So he factors in. So this is religious. It's about God. It's about his people. It's about how God's working. Religious lyric poetry. So there will be thoughts and there will be emotion. <clears throat> I think I might have mentioned last week, one-third of the psalms, of the 150 psalms, uh, about 50 of them are what we call morning psalms. Well, those are downers. Uh, then we'll have praise psalms at the end of it, and they're more, much more upbeat. And they're, they're often short and staccato, praise God for this, praise Him for that, praise Him for this. Uh, I'm not sure what to do with the tambourines. You can ask Ron about that. <laughs> Does he use the tambourines? <laughs> I can't conceive of it. <laughs> oh. I do know that when I went to Africa, it was a much more lively worship service. They had drums, they had tambourines, and castanets. And they were laughing at this white man up front because I didn't have very good rhythm. And I couldn't figure out because I was from Motown. <laughs> what does that mean? So, you know, and I don't, I don't have an aversion for what they're doing or anything like that. It's different. We're much more, uh, uh, what would I say, cerebral? I would think it's cerebral. I know when we were in Arizona, where uh, my son Bob and his wife go to the church. Now, it's a fundamental Baptist church, but it's a lively fundamental Baptist church. <laughs> uh, so you, we will see differences wherever we go. But notice, there are instruments that are used, and uh, that's all part of the joyous noise that they made to the Lord. What they rejoice over is the law, and they celebrate various aspects of worship. So what we've tried to do here is we've tried to define what religious lyric poetry is. Poetry we can understand, lyric we can understand because it's abbreviated, and the religious content we can understand. So that's that's what I would understand to be the nature of the poetry, its religious lyric poetry. Another part of the nature of the poem is the evocative language. Now, we're not going to dote on this a, a long time, but there are a few things we do want to look at. First of all, do you recall from school similes and metaphors? Remember, a simile is a comparison made explicitly with like or as. The metaphors become a little more tricky because you don't have the like or as. But we've got some outstanding examples of this. Uh, notice number one, the simile. A simile declares that A is like B. Look at Psalm 1, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. In this verse, the man who studies the law is compared to a well-nourished tree. The comparison is obvious through the poet's use of like. <laughs> a 
trees and Bible students are not a normal comparison. Uh, one's dead and the other's living at times. Uh, I think of the, I think of the students. <laughs> but uh, here, this creates the sense, a uh, feeling of desire. We want to be well nourished like the tree. Well, that's a simile. But let's look at a metaphor. In fact, to me, in some ways, this is very important to understand. Because if you don't understand it, you can end up a heretic. Uh, I'll show you why. But with a metaphor, it is saying A is B. Well, I think it's better to understand with a metaphor. A represents B. But here's a classic example of why we want to make sure we get this right. Look at Psalm 8410. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. Does he really mean that? The Lord God is the sun. Uh, maybe we should go back to sun worship. Uh, or since he's likened to a shield, uh, maybe some sort of pantheism. Well, that's not the point at all. The point is, is that this is a metaphor. It's saying God is some sense like the sun and the shield. That is, he gives warmth, he gives a sense of security. So uh, there are a number of statements like that in this altar. So when we see something that just sounds bad, understand it's probably a metaphor. It's either metaphor or semi. Well, that's the first two items, but let's look at some other figures of speech. Uh, I'll just give this a lick and a promise, but you're probably familiar with personification. That, for example, you know, we make the wind to speak. Well, at that point, it's being personified. Uh, Psalm 114, verse 3, the sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. Do you really think the sea looked and fled? <laughs> I don't. Well, this is an example of what we call personification. Uh, for the writer's imaginative purposes, he, he compares the sun with this personification. His point is to describe a poetic symbol. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anything wrong with using personification. Uh, now, I want to make sure that I am using personification. But I think that is a good poetic device. I, uh, a lot of pastors, they master this. Uh, I've heard it since I was a kid. You have too, you just haven't thought about it. But I teach the class on poetry, that's why I think about it. Uh, the, my favorite one's hyperbole. Some people don't like it because it's in the Bible, and the Bible always speaks accurately. Well, that's true. But the question is, what does it mean when it's speaking accurately? Uh, you know, I may say to my wife, you always do that. Well, that's hyperbole. Uh, now, we every day, I mean, maybe I could say that. That's not hyperbole. But there's other things. Or she'll say, uh, you know, we never go there. And it's usually meant to get a rise out of it. That's why we use her hyperbole. Or I remember when our kids were little, when one wanted to say they were being ripped off by their parents, they would say, you always let Amy get away with that. You always let your brother get away with that. Or you never let him get away with it. 
Well, I always understood it to be hyperbole. There's always a little bit more emotionally charged, though. Well, that's the point of hyperbole. You know, I still do that. I try to avoid it. But when I want to get a rise out of my wife, I'll use it because I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and she knows what she's doing. So that's the point of hyperbole. It's really to stir the other person. And that's what we do. That's what it is in the Bible. Uh, look at Psalm 40, verse 12. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. Well, boy, that sounds loaded. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Well, you can see the mixture here of his uh, thoughts, his hyperbole. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. Well, I think they're round about us, but I was to see the grace of God in my <laughs> I think there is blessing still in creation because of Christ's redemption. So that's a, that's definitely hyperbole. Um, by the way, if you have a question or want to, you got some hyperboles that your spouse has <laughs> used, go ahead and tell us. <laughs> we'll take notes. <laughs> I think we've got the tape on, so we can document everything. So <laughs> let's look at uh, metonymy. We'll only look at two other items, metonymy and synecdoche. But metonymy is a substitution based upon association. In this case, a quality or suggested term is used for what is literally a myth. For example, we commonly substitute the White House for the President. I've heard that since I was a kid. Uh, you know, uh, we're not always sure who the ED comes from. So we just make it the White House. Or probably the classic is what my wife does. I'll say, uh, just summarize the news for me. She always gets to the weather. And she said, they said, it's going to snow today. And I always say to her, tell me, which weatherman? I've got more confidence in some than others. Uh, but that's a purposeful way of using uh, metonymy, purposely ambiguously, because we don't. she doesn't know who the weatherman is. She's just flipping through the channels. But we've become a little bit more civilized. We'll just, she'll say, well, the weather channel had. Well, that's still pretty broad. But nevertheless, we do that purposely, and we know what she's really getting at. Uh, whoever the meteorologist, they predicted this weather pattern. Uh, so that's metonymy. Uh, look at Psalm 5.9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward parts is destruction itself. Notice, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. You know, to speak with flattery is obviously deceitfulness. The physiological organ, tongue, produces flattery. By association, tongue refers to speech of deceit. So here when we read this verse, <coughs> their inward parts, their being, their throat is an open grave. Uh, 
Notice this is what they say is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. It's with their speech. The tongue is the instrument that produces it, so it's used to substitute for it. But these are poetic imageries. You know, maybe you know our pastor is not what I'd call a flowery preacher, and yours isn't either. I've heard both of them. However, I've heard some real homileticians in my lifetime. They they can paint these pictures with metonymy, synecdoche, hyperbole that leaves a real impression in your mind. Well, that's not my style. I was never able to do it well. I understand what they're doing, though. But yet it is considered a craft. Uh, I remember listening to uh, W.A. Criswell on uh, a moody radio station when we were just after we were married. And he pre- preached on why he believed in a free trip uh, premillennial rapture. I've never heard anything like it in my life. This this just rolled off them like uh, well, I shouldn't say rolled off them, it might sound like water rolling off the duck's back. I don't mean that. He just was so skilled at creating word pictures. Well there are some people like that. Not many though. So there is a place for that, but you won't find it from me, and I don't think you'll find it from Pastor Ken either. So, you know, go ahead and tell him he can work on it, though. <laughs> you, ought to, you all ought to be praying for him. Was he to leave Amsterdam? He's in the plane. That's 253, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are praying for him. <laughs> But didn't they have an incident about they a did. week later? They had one there. But you would think mm-hmm. uh, somebody would get their act together. Mm-hmm. You know, what I don't understand is why we don't just try to imitate the Israelis. That's what I don't understand. <laughs> their system seems a little simpler, but very effective. So, but, you know, I guess we'd rather you know, check out things I don't think we should be checking myself. (laughs) I don't want them doing that to me. So, anyway, I'm sure it'll be a pretty safe flight. Uh, At least we're praying for that end. Well, that's metonymy. Then synecdoche. This substitutes one word for another. There's some type of generic connection. For example, I I like the one in Psalm 51, verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Why I like this example is because I've read the historical books. When David sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, we have no hint that any of his bones were broken. Well, bones is part of his his, uh, innermost being. That's being used in substitute for his being, his inner man. So... That's what we would call synecdoche. A part is used for the whole, or whole is used for the part. Now, what's the way we can always tell these things? Look at the context. The context is always the great definer of all this. So those are things when we read, we do need to make sure that we're aware of. Uh, We could go into more. Now, are there any questions on that before we go on? So, uh, no confessions about your spouse? Okay. It's a good group. Are these going to be on the test? <laughs> no, no, believe me not. I 
Now, I don't know, am I supposed to give a testimony? <laughs> I haven't been planning on it, now maybe I'm supposed to. <laughs> this would be a good place to start. <laughs> no, I was told that we'd all just have a good time. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, well, let's move on to page 16. We have meter. You know, some people really work the meter who are in the Hebrew studies, but, you know, metrical arrangements in the Psalter, they have no effect on how we interpret the Psalter. So I don't worry about it. I used to have my classes do it, but it never affects how they interpret the Psalter. So, big deal. So I point that out because that is part of Hebrew studies and part of study of the Psalter, but I think there's virtually no value to it. We also have parallelism, and this is the most important thing, is understanding the basic nature of parallelism. Uh, parallelism describes how one Hebrew poetic line corresponds to another poetic line. Parallelism is that phenomenon where two or more successive poetic lines strengthen, reinforce, and develop each other's thoughts. So what we have with parallelism, one line will say something one way, the next line will restate it in similar terms. Now, they're very rarely they're exactly synonymous or exclusively antithetical. In the main, there's antithesis, and in the main, there's synonymous. But it's not every word synonymous with the other. Occasionally, you'll see that. But we do need to understand how it works because sometimes it'll help us interpreting something. Let's, let's look at uh, synonymous parallelism I've got an example here from Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. I, I think I'm using NASB at this point in my notes, but look at the layout of verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar? And there's an ellipsis here. Why the peoples devising a vain thing? Now notice, peoples is parallel with the nations. You can state it either way. This uproar is similar to a vain thing. <coughs> That's what's called synonymous parallelism. And what it means is roughly synonymous, not absolutely synonymous. Um, there are perhaps a few examples, but you know, there's nothing in my mind that really just grabs me as being exactly synonymous. So it is probably overworked. But I think we can roughly see how these lines are roughly saying the same thing. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather, take counsel together. Notice those two lines are saying the same basic thing. So, in fact, in my, in my, we have a class called Hebrew Exegetical Methods. The psalm that my class is going through right now, they did a, a translation of the psalm and they had to do what's called textual criticism. Uh, they're going to have to look at parallelism next week. This is the one that they do. And based on that, they then provide a content outline of the psalm. You know, to me, with verses 1 and 2, they're basically saying the same thing. So in their content outline, that can be just one statement. Uh, verse 3 is a little bit more because it tells us what they're saying. But notice, both lines here are also parallel. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice how similar those lines are. There's variation, but they're basically saying the same thing. So in the 
sentence outline, this should be a statement about what they're saying. This is the content of the words. So by recognizing that, you don't dote on every line. You try to bring them all together in something that's meaningful. Um, I can't wait till they put it all together and I can see what it's like in, in a sermon because really ultimately, you know, a seminary is about turning out preachers. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, you got to have people who can communicate. Now, they don't have to be the greatest preacher in the world, but they got to be able to get something across. And, you know, I think uh, there are other things with pastoring. I think there's people skills that have to be developed and things like that. So there's just not one item. You know, it's not if you preach it, they will come. Uh, I think if you do a number of things, <laughs> they will come. But uh, to me, the sermon is very important. Uh, I marvel at the way uh, Ken's developed as a preacher. I remember in the early days when they, when he was lean and mean, Ken Brown. I got pictures to prove it. <laughs> uh, but he always had kind of a flair for that. I mean, you could tell he'd be a good preacher. But, uh, you know, there's uh, there are some who are duds, but they have big churches. Well, they can get some basic information across. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, I think Ken does very well myself. And uh, now that might be because I taught him. <laughs> but, you know, what can you say? Uh, you, you hope you have some sympathy for him. <laughs> or maybe sympathy for you. <laughs> no, but uh, he's mastered the ability to communicate. Uh, and he can get... Uh, his thoughts about God's Word across clearly. Well, I think when you understand these things, it helps you to know what to focus on and what not to focus on. To me, I would take a couple English translations, I would compare them, and come up with my outline. Today we have so many versions. Uh, I think people in churches can do very well by comparing translations to get the basic point. I know my wife and I, I would never use the New Living Translation as my pulpit Bible because it would be hard to explain the Hebrew text. Because as we go through it, I mean, there are many times where I tell my wife, I'll say, I just don't agree with that at all. Well, that's one of the reasons why we're going through it, because I want to pick up the flow of it. But the one thing I would say when, you, when we read the New Living Translation, she gets the basic flow of the passage. So there's a value for that type of, uh, what I call it, loose translation. But I think when it comes to describing the Hebrew text, it is not a good one to work with. Uh, you know, the inner city, we use NASB. That's a good one. Uh, you all use the NIV. I preach in churches that use the ESD. There's a number of good translations that we can connect with. But when we compare them, we can get the general sense of the passage because they'll be communicated in both translations. Well, anyway, that's the synonymous parallelism. Then let's look at the contrast. This is the one that's, can we call it antithetical? That is, the two lines have a contrast. Look at the example that I use here from Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes a father glad. But notice we can etch it in capital letters. B-U-T. 
but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. So on the one hand, the wise son makes daddy glad, and it's as if he's just dumping on the mother with the foolish son. Uh, but I think when you put those two together, I think both the parents have grief over the foolish son, and they have delight in the wise son. Uh, it seems to me that we're presenting an antithetical thought, but they're both communicating the same point. Wise behavior brings joy to a parent. Uh, foolish behavior brings grief. So I don't think it's exclusively a mother thing on the one point or a father thing. I think by putting them together, we see the point. So that's the contrast of then subordination. Uh, notice Psalm 137.1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept. Now notice the temporal conjunction, when we remembered Zion. That's a subordination. You can have cause or a, a causal clause. That would be considered subordination. There, there's a lot of them in the Bible. Uh, so that's subordination. Then comparison. This Psalm 103, verse 13 is a good one. Just as the Father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Notice the main point is the second line. The Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, those who believe in Him. But notice the comparative clause compares it with earthly fathers. They have compassion on their children. So uh, here we can see the comparison being made. So these things I think are fairly obvious to most people when they read it. So, uh, I won't throw it on that too long. So that's the parallelism. Let's look at the historical setting of the psalm. You know, I want to break it to you gently, but the commentaries by Kyle and Delich, uh, when I was in seminary, the big commentary was uh, Kyle and Delich's Old Testament commentaries. I have uh, But that was about the only thing conservative that was out there in those days. We've got a host of other commentaries. But the one problem Kyle and Delich had, they took each of the Psalms and they tried to read something from the historical books into the Psalm. I think we can in some cases. I think Psalm 3, because of the little heading, the superscription, we see something. We see it in Psalm 51. But you know, in, in many of the Psalms, you're not sure what the historical setting is. Did you ever think it's possible that Psalmist did that intentionally because he wants other people to use it like he was using him. We identify with it. So I think there are times when the Psalms are purposely ambiguous about the historical setting because the overarching drive in the Psalmist is for fellow worshipers to use it. That's why they wrote it. Now they may dip into their lives, but they're using their life as examples for fellow worshipers. So I would never worry if I can't find it in historical books. I just thank God because he wrote it so that we could identify with the psalmist. And so there are things where we don't know the historical details, but man, we feel like we're going through something similar. Well, I think that was intentional. Uh, I think many of our hymns were written like that. I don't know if they all were, but uh, many of them were. So don't be surprised if you don't see that. Psalm 2 is one where I think we do have good inside information on the psalm. Acts 
5 tells us it was written by David or spoken by David. So that at least narrows it down. We at least know who wrote it. However, we don't know much more than that. It, it seems like in the psalm itself, it seems like there was some type of rebellion of the nations that were under the vassalship of King David. He looks to the Lord. He celebrates the Davidic covenant. Ultimately, we can see how Christ ultimately fulfills it. But in David's day, I think he saw it as being applicable to him. So he wrote that so that we could all celebrate with him. And then when Jesus comes, that's when uh, you have the Super Bowl, so to speak. I mean, this is it. Uh, you know, I just remember last year in that Super Bowl. I'll never get, forget that pass from Roethlisberger to San Antonio Holmes. Uh, Dr. Snowberger at our seminary, he's also a Steelers fan. And we're at our house just, we thought the Steelers lost the game. And then there was that pass. Wow, what a pass. Well, you know, this wasn't as good a year. <laughs> so, you know, I always think back to those little ditties I read on the internet and I rejoice in them. And, you know, I was trying to buy a hat that had six Super Bowl decals on it from each of the Super Bowls. My wife wouldn't let me do it because she said it's ugly. <laughs> so she put her foot down. So I didn't do it. But I wish I would have. Well, those are high points, for at least for two of us. Well, that's really what it is, I think, for Psalm 2 when it comes to Christ. He is the king. He hasn't taken up the Davidic throne yet, but he has been introduced. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's been identified. He went to the cross, died for his people, was resurrected, and now he's waiting to take up the Davidic throne. But in the meantime, he's calling out a group of people who worship King Jesus. So that's the high point to me. So, you know, those little Super Bowl things, they kind of pale in comparison with that. So those are poor analogy. However, if the Lions won a Super Bowl, I think everybody would be rejoicing. <laughs> the odds makers would be broken. <laughs> but don't hold your breath on that. Well, let's go on to page 18, and we want to look at the three-part structure of the lyric poetry. Here, I think, is something that uh, will be very useful for you when you study the Psalms. Every Psalm has a three-fold structure. It'll have a subject, the development of the subject, and a conclusion. I know you're disappointed that doesn't sound very profound. That should be true in all literature. There should be a subject, there should be a development of the subject, there should be a conclusion. Well, sometimes when we can't identify the subject, that means somebody's a poor writer. They need to go back to the drawing board. But in all psalms, there is some type of psalm, and there are some type of subject, and there will be a development of thought with that subject. And there, then there will be a conclusion. Let's take a look at some of these items, because I think this is one that you, you'll find the most practical so that you can read the psalm in a meaningful way. The subject, I also call it the topic from time to time, is generally contained in the first few verses of a psalm. The psalmist may be responding to a thought, emotion, or situation. The topic may be stated in different ways. In Psalm 1, the topic is found in the first two verses. The psalmist represents his thoughts from the law about the blessedness of a godly person. In Psalm 23, uh, 
perhaps the most uh, beloved psalm of them all. You know, I've heard that used at many funerals, but I rarely hear a sermon on it. But it's got a profound message. The uh, first verse introduces us to the subject. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What the psalmist does is in the next verses, he develops that topic. He catalogs the various activities that God did. He provided them with rest, restoration, moral direction, protection. Uh, he also provides him with the expectation of an eternal home worshiping God. But it's a cataloging of the way God takes care of his sheep. So, you know, to me, when you see that subject, I'm always saying to myself, now how's that subject developed here? Well, in Psalm 23, we can see the catalog as that develops. Uh, other Psalms, it's the same way. So, if I'm reading purposely, no matter what it is, if it's a book or anything, I'm always looking for what I call the thesis. At least in the introduction, there should be a subject. In the conclusion, there should be a thesis. <coughs> if you can't see the thesis, that means somebody's not a good writer. Or maybe it was too technical. But even in the midst of the technicalities, you should be able to find the thesis. Well, that makes it meaningful. So I always look for the subject in the first pages of the book. And then I want to see how they develop that subject. Well, the Psalms the same way. You look for the subject in the first few verses, then you see how that subject's developed in the remainder of the psalm. And uh, then there will be a conclusion. So Psalm 11, verses 1 to 2, David's topic involves a situation where his trust in the Lord helped him through an assassination attempt. Psalm 124, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist presents a situation reflecting God's deliverance of Israel from an enemy. In fact, uh, let's just flip over to Psalm 124 for a minute. This is a uh, marvelous psalm. Not long, not profound. There's uh, only eight verses in it. But notice how it starts out. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say. If the Lord had not been on our side, when men attacked us. Notice in these first two verses, here's a situation where God delivers Israel from an enemy. Notice he says, if God had not been on our side, well, he's going to develop what would happen. Well, the remainder of the psalm, when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be the Lord, who has not let us, who, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of a fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Notice the imagery there. From, from the waters to being trapped like a bird. But yet, God had been on their side. And he concludes, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, you know, the great thing about this psalm 
you know, I've, I've spoken at some banquets and stuff like that. You know, when you're after dinner speaker, they don't need an hour sermon. Uh, I've been moving. There's been hour sermons. Oh, good night. The acid indigestion is just tremendous. <laughs> but it does seem like there are places for short mem- for short messages. So I've given this, it's, it's about a 15, 20 minute message. I can cover the song very quickly <coughs> and get the point across. And yet we're, we're looking at God's Word. And we can identify with that because God was on our side at the cross. And we will not be swallowed alive in hell itself because God was on our side. So that's, that's a good psalm to use in a setting like that. It's, you know, when the church is going through a period of thanksgiving, I turn to some thanksgiving psalms. Those are great to preach because we're, we're rejoicing when they go through troublesome times. Laments are good to use. When they just want to praise God, which should be more often than not, there are many songs to cover that. So these are designed for specific types of occasions. And I think they can help us. And, uh, to me, when I, when I look at some of the great Thanksgiving psalms and I consider how we've been redeemed, you know, how can we do anything less than sing the psalms? Because they do acknowledge how great God is in delivering us. So we should... You know, we, I don't think we should ever forget we were destined for hell. I deserved it. I should have gotten it. But Christ in His atonement, for some reason, I don't know, He died for you and He died for me. So we have great things to be thankful for, even more so than Israel, because many of the Israelites weren't even believers. They were part of the covenant community, but... They did not really believe in God. Look at King Saul. King Saul, what a disaster of his life. Uh, here's a guy who reached the height of Israel's power. He disobeys God. God takes away the kingdom. And his life is just out of control after that. Well, I don't expect to see him in heaven. He didn't have any perseverance. Uh, perseverance doesn't save us, but with our faith, if it's not without some type of perseverance, it at least should cause us to question, where are we? So to me, I would, you know, I don't see Saul as a believer. I see David as a believer. Uh, fact, there's probably only eight Jewish kings that were believers. So they were members of the covenant community. By the way, when you're king, president, you can get away with a lot. If you don't believe me, look at Bill Clinton. By the way, he looks somewhat conservative right now, but <laughs> uh, presidents could. I mean, I think uh, George W., he, uh, the one problem, big government, uh, set us up for the uh, financial desire disaster our kids are going to have to work through the rest of their life. But maybe we can be like uh, one of those European com- countries and get taxed. I know uh, my youngest son, he can't stand it because he loses about 50% of what he makes. That's that's despicable, and he's only 31. Uh, that's sad, but he's, but he's not rich. And he just works a lot of hours as an accountant. So he says it, it's just unfair, especially when a lot of people he worked for 
are also disgruntled. <laughs> well, those are things they'll have to work for. I'm convinced God's in control. I've got something greater in mind than our earthly government. That's eternity with Christ. So, even though we go through some hard times, we, we do need to rejoice that Christ is our King. And He will transcend all government. Uh, every president I know has let me down. Uh, it's, and none of them are brought in the kingdom. So that's why I'm looking King Jesus. <laughs> because He will bring in the kingdom. So, those types of things in life, we, we look to the Lord and we can use these psalms to rejoice. So that's the subject. Let's look at the development of the subject. The subject can be dealt, developed in a number of different ways. We can have a contrast. In Psalm 1, the psalmist sets up a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. This contrast emphasizes the blessedness of the godly. David's trust in the Lord to handle his trial in Psalm 11 is contrasted with advice to flee from Jerusalem. So there are content contrasts. Also, we can have listing. I mentioned Psalm 23. It's a catalog of God's work and his providence in David's life. Uh, we can have psalms developed around relationships. Psalm 19 focuses on the majesty of God. David initially shows how nature reflects God's majesty. Then he moves to a related item, but different, God's work. So there's some type of relation God created them both. The fourth way is through repetition. The topic in Psalm 133 is the blessedness of the Israelite who, of Israelites who are united in worship. The psalmist uses various images to develop his topic. So those are four ways the topic can be developed. There's other ones, but these are four leading ways. Um, and then there's the conclusion to the psalm. A psalm is rounded off by the conclusion. Uh, psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, psalm 19 is rounded off. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I like uh, the exhortation in Psalm 32, verse 11. It concludes the psalm. It says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright. Uh, you know, I have been asked from time to time. It's hard for me to identify with people who are called righteous. I'm still marred by my sin. Uh, it's hard for me to describe myself as upright. So, friends, if you're reading Psalm 32, you need to rejoice or connect with the righteous and the upright. Because in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, which begins it, they are forgiven sinners. So these people who are growing in uprightness, growing in righteousness, they're not perfect. Come to think of it, nobody's been perfect. Uh, no one except Christ. And that's because he was the God-man. So that's how the psalms are concluded. Now, I summarize this and go through a few things, but uh, you can read that on your own. Uh, next week, we do need to start with page 20. We're going to start looking at the psalms, the various types of psalms, lament, thanksgiving, praise psalms. Uh, hopefully, I can steer you clear when uh, you're involved in a wedding ceremony. 
Never use a lament psalm as your test. <laughs> there is a royal thanksgiving psalm, but the lament communicates a lot of wrong message. Okay, well, thanks for your patience. And by the way, if you want to say something, just feel free. You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, just don't tackle me. Just get my attention and let it rip. Okay, so well, we'll see you next week then.